right. Uh, hello, everyone. Good morning. Ooh. Hello, Judah. Would you pray for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you for um, yeah, the beauty of your word. May we submit to um, yeah every word that comes from what you revealed to us. May we um, be very grateful and very thankful for uh, the fact that we have so much access to it and we can help by it and learn to love you and love others and all of you. Amen. Amen. When Judges begins, the Lord tells the tribes to continue the conquest. Okay, the conquest is unfinished. The, the unfinished conquest is going to be a theme now, all the way through till David finishes it. Um, it's, it's one theme I didn't take up very often because it, I, I felt like it would have distracted us from, in our sermon series. But David finishes the conquest. Part, part of what happens at the end of 2 Samuel is that he, that, that king that he goes and buys the he goes to that one king near Jerusalem and he buys the threshing floor. And by buying the threshing floor, he's brought the last tribe, he's conquered the last tribe in the land. And, and there's a great deal to it. it. As you can tell, even though by the way I'm explaining this, this would have taken us some time to just focus on all by itself. But the, the land is unconquered, it's not finished, it, didn't, it wasn't finished in Joshua's day. And this continues what I think I've been talking about before, the, the multi-generational... Um, aspect of God's plan, okay? It's never going to happen in a day, okay? Uh, Abraham went around and uh, built altars and worshiped the Lord. Centuries later, Joshua invades, and then it's going to be another couple of hundred years before it's finished. And um, I think at the at, in 1 Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, I can't remember which it is, they said that it had been 480 years since the exodus the exodus and the finishing of the temple, okay? So the promises of God are not fulfilled in an instant. They take time, they require faith, they require hope, they require looking to the heavens and, and, and appealing to God to remember what he has promised. He wants us to do that. When we, um, the rainbow was put into the sky so that he would remember his promise. We hold up communion, a part, part of why we have it every week is because we're reminding him who we are, not just eating it for our own sakes. We're holding it up, we're reminding him who we are. He needs to be reminded. And, and what, we, what, um, what we see is how often he remembers and how often we forget. Okay? Because the book of Judges is all about forgetting, isn't it? So at the very beginning of Judges, Judah is the most successful tribe. You, you, if we're reading chapter 1, they go out, they get it done, and then there's a con, you know, they talk about the other tribes, and the other tribes, each tribe is less successful. Judah's the most successful, and by the time you get to the last tribe, Dan, not only do they not succeed, they themselves are driven into the hill country. Okay, Dan um, is a tribe that we're going... <laughs> It, we're, they're going to fall off the map at some point here. It's, they call it the Lost Tribe. We don't know what um, And you can see from their history, they were always a troubled bunch from the very which, beginning. Which tribe did you just say? Dan. So if we turn to Judges chapter 2, I actually do want to read um, some of this because it's important um, that... There, there's a theophany here at the start of Judges that's very important for us to understand the story, where what's happened and where it's going, and how we got here. Oh my gosh, thank you. Look at the service. Service with a smile. Thank you. Okay, so ju Judges uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you 
I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you, and you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weepers, <laughs> and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now this is, this is what is, is going to happen now. Everything that happens in Judges is a punishment for, for their forgetting God. Okay, So sometimes we get into it and we think, man, these guys are morons. Um, they're disgusting, they're filthy, they're, they're foolish. The whole thing is a punishment. Okay, Just like God says, if you don't obey me, I will send you in exile, and lo and behold, the exile happens. Um, he says, if you reject me, I will reject you. And, and what we see throughout the book of Judges is what happens when we reject God. And, and it's a lesson that Israel needs to learn again and again and again and again. There's no end um, to their stubbornness, their foolishness. So if you turn then to verses 6 through 19, um, what we see there is a summary of the book of Judges. This is, what, this is pretty much what happens throughout the whole book. Okay? The, the reason it happens is punishment, is chastisement, is discipline from the Lord. But what happens is this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession in the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work and the Lord, that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him with the boundaries of, within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timoth Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gahash. And all their, that generation also were gathered into their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. So you have a leader. He's faithful. He dies. They go astray. They are then punished by various nations within the land that they hadn't driven out. And then so they cry out to God. God raises up a leader who's faithful for a time. He dies. And this is the cycle, okay? These are the cycles of judges. And um, isn't this the case always, okay? I mean, if you think about church history, right, it, doesn't it seem that this is kind of what happens? Like, there, there, there is a time uh, for a while where Christians are faithful and there's good leaders, solid leaders doing the good work. The saints are doing the good work. Everyone's following him. And, and um, they go on for a while, and then the leader dies, the movement dies, and everything goes dark for a while. And I would say, if you look at church history, this is very much the pattern. Um, James Jordan wrote a commentary on Judges and called it the, so uh, the Sociology of Man. He's like, this is what man does. Okay? There, this is the cycles of uh, obedience and wisdom for a time uh, with a strong leader followed by disobedience and punishment um, right, and, and this is, have you guys heard this lately? This is what the guys in Moscow were talking about all the time. You have good men who come along and build a good society, right, based on uh, obedience to the Lord. They build good institutions. They, they have good and glorious things. You build a great society. And, and then the next generation gets lazy and fat and privileged, okay? And they become soft, which leads to hard times, which creates hard men, good men, who then make a good place, and the cycle repeats itself. And I would say that's very much... Uh, what's going on now. Um, 
not I would I would say mine my generation is the soft one that came after <laughs> because the decline started I would say in the 50s and 60s and 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 there there's institutional wisdom that we have lost as Americans we, we don't understand what the military is for we don't understand um, what our responsibility is to the to our society what responsibility our society has to the world and and we've all gotten soft. And so we're in ourselves a cycle like the cycle of the judges. Uh, do, you, do you guys agree with that? Or? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's preaching to the choir. Um, yeah, and so this is, this is why I talked with, I have five sons, I don't think that's an accident, obviously. Uh, the Calvinist dice were rolled and that's what I ended up with. Um, and, and, I, and what I talk to them about is not being soft men, right? This is, you're going to have a very difficult time. And, and we talk about it not in the pessimism of premillennialism and dourness, but in the positive strength of, of postmillennialism. You were made for these times, and so you need to prepare for these times, because these are going to be the difficult times in which we re you guys are going to, be, you and your sons rebuild uh, Christendom that we lost. So my responsibility is teaching them as much about how that ought to happen, bringing back Christendom. Does, it, does that make sense? And I think um, increasingly this is the prophetic voice of the church in the age we live in, reminding us all of what we have forgotten. And that's what we see God is always willing to do. No matter how many times Israel forgets God, he comes to the rescue. He always comes to the rescue. Now, <laughs> Uh, we are desperately in need of his coming to our rescue. So, contextually now, uh, the content of Judges, there's, there's the greater Judges and the lesser Judges, there's a bunch of different ones, there's seven total. Um, I, I could spend a lot of time talking about this. Samson, besides Joseph and Genesis, Samson is, all, is the most maligned hero, because <laughs> I would call him a hero. I, it's very difficult for us to understand kind of what he's doing, why he's doing it. He seems to be very reckless, and he is. Um, but he's somebody that we, that we tend to just dunk on all the time, right? Samson the fool, Samson the weakling. <laughs> Even though he's, he's physically strong, he seems spiritually weak. But his, his spiritual strength is his physical strength. But I digress. I wish I could spend a whole class just talking about him. But he is not who... Yeah. Uh, can I? Yeah. No, because i got to talk about Ruth. <laughs> I'm trying to get through this judge's nonsense so we can get to Ruth. Um, Samson is very misunderstood. So I'm just going to say now, I, I, my assumption is you guys don't think he's a good guy, and I'm telling you that's not true. <laughs> so um, I think uh, this is what happens to us ethically. It's very hard for us to understand You know, his womanizing. Right? He, he goes and gets Philistine... Um, Mike. He kills Philistines. I'm sorry, I gotta interrupt you. Yeah. If a man in our church, yes, a godly man, yes, were womanizing, would you say he was a good man? Uh, Do not demonize him. No. Do I say that? Yeah. So I would. I mean, there's right. Samson, and you know, it's not like there was no good so, in him. So here's here's what I, here's an example of of Luther was an alcoholic. Luther was by any stretch of the imagination, no matter how you dice it, a drunk. Um, he, he was a drunk. He should have been rebuked as a drunk. Everyone should have said, stop drinking. How about you drink some water? Um, he was a drunk. He was a fall-down drunk sometimes. Now, all that being said, everyone should read Luther. Everyone should act like Luther, <laughs> except for the drinking. Samson, because of his sins, this is, this is what we do to biblical characters. We look at the sins, and we say, okay, we're going to write this character off. 
And so we're, we're used to this pietistic, modern way of looking at it where Jesus is the only good guy and everybody else sucks. And that, <laughs> that interpretive principle is bad. So Samson should not have been a womanizer. I have no problem with that. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that Samson was a bad guy. He, uh, good men can do bad things. And if good men don't do bad things, it's really hard to explain anything. Um, I don't disagree with that, but I would not hold up a man who was a womanizer as an example of something good. Just, yeah, well, I mean, I so I think that you run into a problem there because there's a little chapter in Hebrews called uh, the Heroes of the Faith, right? Chapter 11. And there's all kinds of characters in there that we would not typically consider good guys. And yet the Bible calls even Lot righteous Lot. Okay, so if the Bible calls Lot righteous, I feel free to sin, frankly. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that is the wrong conclusion, Laura. I will say, I will say wholeheartedly. We all wouldn't be in this room. God uses flawed people, and we we write stories about all these people, and I'm you can call them hero or whatever. We we write stories, and we, we neglect. Almost every person in the Bible has, has times of unfaithfulness, mm-hmm. and, and God uses people. Yeah. Oh God. And we can talk God a lot. We can talk a lot about Samson, but we want to go on. Yeah. Uh, like Mike said, but it, it's all good news to us because He uses flawed people. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we desire to be flawed, but we are. Yeah. Our, our desire is not to be flawed, and I will say this: like, so what I really mean by this is, I'll go. I'll, I'll be very clear. You have somebody like Samson who's complicated character in the Bible. Okay, now the assumption I think most Christians make is that he's going to go to hell. That's what I'm talking about. You people think Joseph is wicked and evil and he's going to, or not Joseph, but Jacob, is wicked and evil and he's a trickster and he's, we're going to see him in hell. That generation that came out in the Exodus were wicked and evil and we're going to, they're, going to all, they're all in hell now. So we judge these people on, on, a, on an ethic that is not the biblical ethic. Samson is not in hell. He, he is a hero of the faith, and even though he was flawed. And if we have, if you're looking for heroes of the faith who are unflawed, there aren't any, uh, I think is what <laughs> our brother Keith is making the point of. No, none of us would be here. So, and who's the greatest hero? Of them all, yes. is the unflawed one, right? So he's at the top. But I just remember when I came to Mars Hill, this was always what we did. It's like, uh, he did Genesis. I remember he preached through Genesis, and ev- it's like uh, everyone is bad. No one is a positive example. Everyone is is broken. Everyone is shattered. Everyone is useless except Jesus. And and I find this still in evangelicals. And, and I think that that's a very dangerous paradigm because you, you run into a bit of a problem there. Um, in what way should we imitate Samson? Should we grow our hair long? Should we eat honey out of a lion carcass? No, that's not. <laughs> Right, but in the very think of his in the end of his life, even this arguably is the one redemptive act. Why did he? Why did he want his strength back? Because he wanted to live his best life now. <laughs> right, he 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 cries out to God to, get, to receive his strength, and he goes out and he shoves the pillars down, and it's very it's a very Christ-like moment. Right, and so this is you you have a whole life like his, and you can find a Christ-like moment at the end. Amen. And therefore, right, I, and we would all be so lucky to have a Christ-like moment. And I think that's part of the point of Samson. He does all this goofy stuff, and then in the end, he's very he's much like Christ. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> to the glory of God, Laura. To the glory of God. 
Okay, so Gideon is the next guy, the guy I do actually want to talk about. Because he's used, um, he's an important one to understand. If you're going to understand any of the judges interpretively going forward, he's the one. Uh, Saul is compared a lot to him. Uh, in the text of First and Second Samuel and, and Kings, Gideon is the one that everybody comes back to, um, and, and and there's a lot of play off of him, right? There's there's types and shadows and echoes all through the rest of the Old Testament about Gideon. So Gideon is a great hero as well. He destroyed the altars of Baal in his own hometown. He saves uh, Israel from the Midianites. He renews Israel. He's filled with the Spirit. And then through his work as judge, the spirit is poured out on the on dry bones of Israel. Okay? So first the head of Israel is renewed, and then the body follows. So he, he receives the spirit, and through him the people receive the spirit, and, and they receive victory. And this, this is the pattern that God uses. Okay? Um, he, his, he equips people to deliver his children. Um, Gideon not only delivers Israelites from the Midianites, but he also renews Israel's spiritually. It's not just um, military victories on the field of battle. Okay, And this is where we get in a little bit of trouble with words like salvation and justification because the Hebrew versions of these words, the Hebrew words, are sometimes used um, in, in the context of warfare. And when, when it says that they're delivered, what does that mean? Are they just physically delivered from tyrants? No. There's, at the same time that they're going out on the battlefield and winning these victories, they are being spiritually renewed. Okay, this is one of the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, by them going out and fighting, okay, physically fighting, th there is a sense where they're saving, being saved by doing this. Now, what we are doing is we go out and we fight, right? We fight. We have a sword. We have shields. We have armor. But, but what we do not do is do it physically now, right? We don't have a group of uh, clandestine. Uh, yeah, our job is not to go and whack the governor <laughs> and deliver all of the people in the land, right? Because we have more powerful forces than that at our disposal. So the, the main weapon that is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament by God is the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon people, they are a fighting people. Okay, so this is what happens to Saul. Remember when Saul's in the field and he's plowing and they come to him and, and he tears his clothes and he's, he cries out to God and God gives him the spirit and he, he immediately terrifies everyone with his veracity and then they go and, and win a victory. So Gideon is a great example of, of what happened at Pentecost. The spirit of God descended on the church at Pentecost to make a fighting people. Okay, That is what we are supposed to be. We are the church militant. And I think that what happens is people either forget this or they misapply it. So you can think in your in, right now in our own age, are people misapplying this principle? We are the church militant. Yes, because they fight like the world. Are, um, are there people who have forgotten this about us? Yes. Right? And so they're sitting on their hands and they say, if you just stop fighting, there will cease to be conflict. Uh, and that is, that's not the case. The conflict is there. You're either engaged in it or you're not. And if you're engaged in it, you should be engaged in it in a particular way, right? So what are some ways that we engage in the fight? Okay, we're, we're not Gideon. We're not going out there with lamps and swords and dividing our army into three and slaughtering Linwinites uh, by the dozens. How is it that we are actually fighting this battle? Prayer. Prayer, boom. Okay, something. We speak to God in his throne room. In the heavenlies, we are part of the 
counsel, divine counsel. This is something only the prophets were uh, able to do, and that is something we can do. Okay, so that is our pro prophetic, one of our prophetic offices as the people of God. How else do we fight? Scripture itself. Scripture itself. It is okay. And so that is our sword. Okay, so so this is again a prophetic office. We are the ones who are telling the truth in, in an age of lies. Uh, in the beginning was a man and a woman, right? One man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime. And so that that's what you need. That's what you need to fight the lies of the day. Because we, we go to the scriptures and we say, look, right here, um, science aligns with this. Science doesn't lie. If you take 10 trans guys and 100 uh, men and in 100 years or 200 years and you dig up their corpses, what are we going to find? Men. Right? Why? Because the world was made by a God and this, he, he set it up and it, it, it is, operates the way he set it up and look, we can take you to the scriptures and show you right, how what you're trying to do is a lie. You can say that this, is a, this trans guy is a woman all day long, but that does not make him so. Um, C.S. Lewis made this point, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, prisoners in their cells, right? Imagine a prisoner locked in a cell, and he scribbles on the wall darkness, okay? thinking that he's blackened the sun by writing darkness on his prison wall. And, and that's, we live in an age where this is where people are doing, they're, they're just saying these things. Right? They think they can darken the sun. They think they can change reality simply by scratching words on their prison walls. And we have the scriptures... We are well armed to slay dragons, uh, kill giants, and defeat lies. Okay, how else do we fight this fight? Prayer, scripture, very good, very biblical. By our way of living. Okay, way of living, nice. Right? Um, Paul, uh, Peter talks about this. We live in such a way that people ask us, why are you so hopeful? What is this reason that you live in this hopeful way when everything is going badly? Haven't you seen about how the, what's going on with the banks? Haven't you seen what's going on in Ukraine? And we think, yeah, and, and there is the Lord sitting upon his throne, ruling and reigning it all wisely and well. Okay? So the way we live, hopefully, in this world is a, is, is a testimony to the God we serve. All right, another one. I'm just going to give you the answer. I call it... This is a happy accident. Warship. Warship. <laughs> my, my, I'm a friend, Volodymyr, and uh, he and I try to communicate. Um, and it's very funny, uh, some of the things that he says, because he uses Google Translate. But one time he said, warship. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to use that. That's nice. Because it's not worship, it's warfare. Okay? So we call it warship. <laughs> and when we are singing, when we are praying, when we are preaching, when we are, what, repenting of our sins, when we're declaring the truth, the whole thing is warfare. Just like in, in Joshua when they go around, right, they go around Jericho, they're worshiping and they are winning. So what is the first thing Gideon does? The first thing he does is he destroys, right, he, he, he restores worship in his town. That's the first thing he does. And that's very important for us. If we're going to restore the land, if we're going to be strong Christian people who are restoring Christendom and, and we're delivering people from darkness, we, the first thing we do is worship. That has not changed. Okay? Worship is the basis of our going to war. All right. Now, because 
these glorious saints are also very flawed, <laughs> right? Gideon has his moment in the sun, and then what happens to him? Do you guys know? He declines quite rapidly in the end. He is not the, the new hope. Idol worship. Idol worship, yeah. So he, um, they try to make him king, um, but and, and they try to make him king at one point, the first king of Israel. Uh, but he, he replies, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Yahweh shall rule over you. So, so you see here that the words of his mouth are correct. I will not rule over you. I will not be your king. My son will not be your king. Yahweh is your king. And this is something that Israel has forgotten. This is something they're going to continue to forget. This is something they forget all the way into the book of Samuel. But Gideon for, uh, uh, knows the right answer. But he does not live consistently with this right answer. And this is where you see the flawedness of men. They can say the right thing, but that doesn't mean they're going to do the right thing. Um, because Gideon has a son. He has a son, and his, the son's name is My Father is King. Abimelech means My Father is King. So <laughs> how are you out of one side of your mouth going to say you're not going to be the king, but then name your son... Uh, my father is the king. So I, I find that to be, uh, I'm going to say, deliciously ironic. And, and this, isn't this man, right? It, all that God has done for him, all the good that, he, that Gideon has done for, the, for Israel, for the Lord. And then here at the end, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth at once. And this is why we need, we're still waiting at this point in the story for the hero to come, the real hero. Okay, so Abimelech is actually the first king in Israel. He slaughters all of his brothers, um, and, and he is actually crowned. We think Saul's the first king in Israel, but it's not. It's Abimelech. And, and it's because his father failed to raise him right. Okay, and, and that is a theme of Judges as well. The next generation forgets. Why? Because the parents are not instructing the children in the things that the children ought to know. And so we, we you know, this is why here we're a Reformed church who's Presbyterian, um, we are pedo everything, pedo, pedo, pedo. We baptize our kids, we feed them communion, we instruct them so that they do not forget the God that they serve. And, and, and this is very important to us, okay? Whether, whether you agree about the, the details, it is our responsibility to teach the next generation so they do not forget. Gideon may know the right answer, but he clearly did not instruct his children in the way they ought to go. And so they depart and, um, from that way, and, and thus chaos ensues. Okay, so now, before we get to Ruth, delightful Ruth, <laughs> part, part of why I had you read those stories um, at the end of Judges is, is because I want you to see how bad it got. Okay, I want you to see that it was the priests, uh, the Levites, who were, who were the center of how bad it was. Okay, the center of the, of the storm is the Levites. The guys who were supposed to remind everybody, um, and, and about who Yahweh is and what he's done for them, they are the ones leading everyone astray at this point. All this bad stuff happens at the end because of them. Also, the area in which the bad stuff is happening is the very area in which the book of Ruth takes place. Okay, so it says in the beginning of Ruth that, that it, it took place in the time of the judges. And you can see why Boaz is protecting her and is afraid for her in the field, because what, what did we just read about at the end of Judges? Well, they, they need some wives, so they come and steal the, the women who are in the fields. And you're like, so that's one of the contexts um, for Ruth. Okay, so why did I have you read those stories? You tell me what's going on there at the end. The, the Levites have gone south in a big way, but what is happening, right? What, what are some things that those stories reminded you of? 
did it seem like it's, did it sound like anything that we had read before? Right, the Levite comes to the town, and he's got his woman with him, which he's not supposed to have. Did, did that story remind you of anything? Yeah, a lot. A lot, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this town within Israel has become just like, what, Sodom. Remember Sodom? So the stories, I, for a second I was reading uh, the, the book that, it wasn't the Bible, I have this other book that had the story in it. For a second I thought, Did I, am I reading the wrong part? <laughs> it's so much like the story of Sodom that I actually thought I was reading the wrong section for a second. I was like, man, this is really like that. Um, and so that, this is what's happened to Israel. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? How did God treat Sodom and Gomorrah? He destroyed them. He destroyed them. Okay, so what's coming for Israel here if this is what, what is going on? Same thing. Okay, and then there's all kinds of other weird things here. Um, the, the, they won't give up the Levites so that the men can have sex with them. So that what did they give up? Her, his, his concubine and the other guy's virgin daughter. Because, and this is one thing. The, the, this is why it's so difficult to understand these stories sometimes. Hospitality is more important than the virginity of your daughter, apparently. And, and, and that's, what, that's the ethical standard that, they're saying, that they have. It's worse to violate the laws of hospitality than to violate the laws of hospitality. They didn't other... violate the laws of hospitality. They sent their guest out to be raped. Well, the woman was also a guest in the home. Yes, I understand, Laura, she was. But uh, that, they, that's not how they would have understood it. That was not the culture of the day. And you can see how different the, the New Testament culture of the church is. Okay? Because the sons, all men and women are now sons of God. And sons is a legal term. And, and there's, a, there's a, a quality now that didn't exist in the Old Testament. And that's also very difficult for us. Uh, this whole story is full of problems. Um, and... and you know, the, the one Levite who's selling, right, his hands are full of money because he's selling uh, his, his priesthood away. He's not doing it for Yahweh. He's doing it for money. And, and you see that, you see this guy, you see this other Levite who has these, his wife goes away from him, and then he's got to go and get her back. It seems like an episode of Cops or something. Um, it's really, really tragic what's going on. Um, and then you have uh, the, this tribe that um, they go to war against because that's where this whole story happened and then you have civil war and then you have, why is it that if when Dan is gathered for war, the Israelites go against them why do you think that they had so many men die and, and it took three battles in order to put down this tribe like why, why would God do that to them well if we go back to the, the beginning of the story the whole thing is God's chastisement of all of Israel Okay? It's not just about the tribe of Dan. All the tribes are rotten from the inside out. And so he's judging all of them. And what he uses is, is, is warfare to judge both sides. So what you see, this is why I love my Ukrainian brothers. But the judgment of God is on, upon both nations. Okay? There, there is not an innocent party in one sense in that conflict. There is an innocent party in the sense that one nation should not just invade another nation. Okay, I, I, I grant that. But neither of those parties are innocent. They're, they're corrupt and filthy from the inside out. And, and when this happens, right, God sends chastisement and, and tries to get people's attention. Right? This, is, this is what he will do. He will use pestilence. He will use storms. He will use warfare. He will use tragedies like what's going on with the Levite and his concubine 
he, he's, he's working through these small stories on a bigger story. Okay? And that is, they have forgotten him, and he's trying to get their attention by how bad things are. Now, this kind of thing in the United States, like when people say that if we don't stop abortion, we're, we will be judged for it by God, and, and not realizing that the ab abortion is the judgment of God. Right? We, we are a people who kill their own children in, in the one place that should be the safest for them. That, that's not going to cause the judgment of God. That is the judgment of God. Okay? So this Levite and his, and his concubine, it's not, gonna, it's not the thing that's going to lead to chastisement. It is the chastisement. Okay? When you have those kinds of spiritual leaders in the land, it's, things are very bad. Um, I know I'm going through this very quickly, but do you guys have any questions? Because I want to move on past this filth and um, get to the real hero of the story. Yeah, so what's going on at the end? Um, is that the authors of this book are trying to let us know exactly how bad it had gotten, right? It's, this is an R-rated book. Um, and it's very difficult to get in here. In, in these sections, there are no heroes. In my opinion, this is where I, I, right, we all agree, nobody here should be held up as an example to anybody for anything. Not the way that they're handling the tribe of Daniel, not the way they handle the fact that they don't have any wives left because they slaughter everybody. Um, and then they steal women to give to them, and it's just madness. Okay, so while all of this is going on, in a little town called Bethlehem, okay, um, which is, do you guys know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. So there's a famine in the house of bread, which is ironic all by itself, right? There's a famine in the house of bread. Um, and throughout the end of Judges, this phrase kept coming up, there is no king in Israel, there is no king in Israel. Well, is there an actual king in Israel? Yes. Yes, and who is it? The Lord. The, the Lord, okay? So, but Israel is acting like a widow. So the, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth are supposed, they're companions. That's, they are supposed to be read together. Because while man is doing all this corrupt nonsense over here, we see that God is working through a faithful man like Boaz and his family and the quiet suffering of um, Naomi, who is a type of Israel. She is a widow like Israel is a widow. Because all, while you have all these wicked men doing all these wicked things, um, there are innocent bystanders. Okay? There is still this quiet neighborhood where life goes on, uh, full of people doing the, the work of the Lord. Okay? So, so Naomi and her family leaves the, the house of bread because there's a famine. She, she, they're, they're so desperate to live that they don't mind living amongst Gentiles. Okay, now later on, that, right, think, think of Israel in Jesus' day. You, don't, you can't even eat with a Gentile. Things had gotten so bad in the time of the judges that intermixing with other uh, tribes doesn't seem to be a problem. Okay, so you can see how bad things are simply by the fact that Naomi's husband takes them to this other land and allows his sons to marry uh, Mo Moabite. So women. how long after the Exodus does this story occur? Uh... It's like halfway between. I think it's like three hundred years or so. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 about the halfway mark between the Exodus and the building of the temple. Does that make sense? Because because there's overlap. Samuel is actually the last judge in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, so the book of Judges doesn't actually end of the the judge period doesn't end at the end of the book of Judges. It carries on because you have Ruth there as sort of an in, in between bridge, and then you get into First Samuel. 
and the judgeships are still going on. And Eli was alive at the time of Samson. Okay? So Eli is alive at the time of Samson. Samuel is alive at the time of Samson. Those things all overlap. So in the house of bread, there's a famine. So they go into the, to um, Moab. They let their sons marry Moabite women, which is actually not allowed. All of this is not allowed. Okay? All, all the things they're doing are disobedient. But then the sons die. All the men die. And they're bereft of husbands. They're bereft of sons. And, and they're widows. Okay? And they're Israel. So now Israel returns. And what happens when Israel returns to God? They are blessed. So Israel returns to the house of bread. It comes back to Israel. These widows come back to Israel. And they are, are going to try now to make a life for themselves. Okay? And, and, and the thing that they find is what? A good man. <laughs> There's lots of bad men in the land. But here is Boaz who, who is out in his fields working um, he, he's there amongst his people, he's generous, he's kind, and he uses his people to minister to Ruth, right? So not only is he kind to her, he says, hey, come and work in this field, um, share in our food, and then he gets other people to be generous towards her. He, 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 he works through others, he encourages others to be generous towards her. And there's one commentary on the book of Ruth that just really takes this and runs with it, okay? Because when, when we are obeying God and we are generous and kind and, and loving him and serving him the way we should it, 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 it works through us into the life of others Okay, so, so this is one of those things I love, I, I love doing this kind of stuff you hear that somebody needs something and, and, you, and you, I like putting people together that, and these needs and these resources these two people get together and there's joy in this giving and receiving and service to one another and that's what Boaz is doing. He's not just leaving it to himself. He's, he's getting the whole community involved. Uh, you know, I did a series on Ruth many years ago. It's really funny because in Hebrew, uh, turning, it, there's a lot of play on words in this book. One of them is turning, the word for repenting is used a lot. They turn back towards Bethlehem. Um, and then this, this play on words is used. If you go and you circle every time they, someone turns in the book of Ruth, it's supposed to be a metaphor for Israel returning to Yahweh. Okay? Um, and when Boaz first sees her, he thinks she's pretty good looking. That, that's also very obvious in the Hebrew. She's a good looking woman, woman and he notices. Okay? So even before she comes to him and uh, covers uh, herself with his garments, there's already an, some attraction between the two. But culturally, uh, they don't, they, there's no, nobody talks about it early on because there's propriety. They're both very, very, very um, pious people. Unlike <laughs> the Levite and his concubine and all those knuckleheads. Okay? So there's a lot of play on words in the book of Ruth. Um, several of them. Yeah, the word uh, lads is used twice. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, Naomi loses her two lads. Uh, the other time it's used in, is in 4.16, where Naomi takes the lad who was born to Ruth, it's a boy, and becomes his guardian or nurse. Okay, so she lost her lads at the start of the story, and then at the, and she says, call me bitterness. And then at the end of the story, she's given a lad back, and she's, she's given her joy back. She's given a child, and this restores her joy and her... Um, happiness. Okay, the word empty is also used. Naomi complains against the Lord that she has been emptied. Chapter 1, verse 21. She is an empty vessel in every sense. She no longer can bear children. She's lost her husband, her sons, the land. 
um, after his midnight meeting with Ruth, Boaz measures out barley, telling Ruth that she ought to return to Naomi with she ought not to return to Naomi with empty hands. So he's filling not just Ruth but Naomi. And and so God is providing the means for these widows to cease being empty and bitter and broken and lost and on the margins of society. And and this is the right all this other stuff is going on in Judges. God is making a way. He is providing um, the necessary requirements to bring about the promised seed who's going to deliver Israel. Because who is there? Who who who's the, comes from Boaz and Ruth? You guys know David. <gasps> David. Yes. There you go. And further down the line, Jesus. So here, God is quietly through faithful people, through the sorrows of life that people really endure, through the everyday working. Um, tasks of people, God is telling his, his story, bringing about his glory, and, and saving humanity. And I think that's why these two books, right, the, the badness of Judges is, is, is um, a real, uh, you put in stark relief to the goodness of the book of Ruth. And I think it's important that it's, it's women. I think it's important that they are virtuous. I think it's important that Boaz is this single older guy um, who seems like, I just imagine this hapless fella who's always been really nice but never taken that seriously by the ladies, and then good-looking Ruth shows up and changes his life. Because the other thing that's used is the word wings is used twice. Boaz prays that the Lord would re reward Ruth, who has come under the wings of Yahweh. And the wings of Yahweh is a covenantal term. When you come into covenant with God, David talks about you've now been under his wings. When Jesus sees Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? If you would, I, I, I would have protected you like a chick under his wings. The metaphor for the old covenant is the wings, okay? So then what happens? Ruth comes to Boaz and covers herself with the wings of his garment. And she's saying, please marry me. Um, and I love, I love this story because um, it's her... Um, getting herself in his way uh, so that he can do the right thing and the manly thing and take her as his bride. Okay? Um, the other thing you see here is the kinsman redeemer. Um, the leave right marriage, they call it, uh, where the brother has to marry the widow of his, of his brother and so that he can provide an heir. So there's one guy who will take the land but doesn't want Ruth. Boaz will take the land and he'll take Ruth. It doesn't diminish his estate in any way to do this. And that's why they take the baby and give it to Naomi, okay? They're restoring the lost brothers. And I am sure that they go on and have many more children after that, I, I would say. Their family seems huge uh, later. And when you talk about, uh, and in Samuel, they go back to Moab several times. David visits it, okay? I think his family is big. I think he was was used to Gentiles, he was used to being around them, he was used to being kind to them, because he, uh, his grandmother was a Moabitess, right? He, she's from that land. All right, do you guys have any questions? That was a lot of information, I apologize, but it is what it is. <laughs> All right, good men doing good things. Um, so I think uh, culturally for us, right, if, if, if the ladies ought to be like Ruth and Naomi, uh, returning to the, the house of bread, and, and it's men like Joab, and, and this is the story that God is telling, right? It's, it's the ordinary man and his ordinary wife and their ordinary life is the most extraordinary thing, G.K. Chesterton said. And I agree with him, um, because that is at the heart of this story when all this other chaos is going on, okay? So go and be like Ruth and Boaz.
Not like the, the Levite and his concubine. 